Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. It's just after 2am on an icy winter morning in 2017. Frost glistens on the paddocks of Pandora, a sprawling property in country New South Wales owned by local grazier Matthew Dunbar. The old homestead on the outskirts of the town of Walker, five hours' drive north of Sydney, sits on 1,200 acres on Thunderbolts Way. On this Wednesday morning... Matthew's girlfriend, Natasha Darcy, is leaning over him in the bedroom, panicked, as a triple zero operator guides her through chest compressions. I just walked into the bedroom and he put a plastic bag over his head with a cold Distressed, Natasha tells the operator, he's warm. Is he awake, they ask? No. Is he breathing? No. And you found him like that? Yes. Blue and red lights flash through the windows as paramedics arrive, rush into the bedroom and take over CPR. By 2.44am, 42-year-old Matthew is declared dead and it doesn't take long for police to declare the homestead a crime scene. He was just the sweetest, most loving man you'll ever meet. I'm Gemma Bath, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with journalist and author Emma Partridge, whose new book, The Widow of Walker, details one of the most extraordinary criminal trials in Australia's history. Tell me about the rumour mill in the New South Wales town of Walker. Word travels pretty fast in a town like that, right? Yeah, word travels pretty fast, but especially in such a small town like Walker. It's a very small community, about 3,000 people. I don't know if you've been there. It's a very sort of cool and misty town. A lot of different people live there, like a lot of artists, sculptors, big farming community as well. But it's very tight-knit, everyone walking down the street, knowing everyone's business and, you know, saying hello. Everybody knows what's going on with each other. How did the whispers of Walker reach you in the winter of 2017? Because you were a reporter in Sydney at the time. Yeah, that's right. My sister lives in Newcastle and some of her husband's family live in Walker and they had come to lunch at my sister's house in Newcastle and over the lunch they had described that they believed there was this black widow living in their town They said that she had tried to kill her ex-husband and that this farmer, a very well-known farmer in Walker, had recently died 
and she had been telling everyone it was a suicide, but everyone was of the firm belief that she had had something to do with his murder. And Tess, my sister, went into great detail of how she'd allegedly killed him, which, you know, to me sounded like it couldn't be true. She went into great detail about how this woman had allegedly put a plastic bag over his head and used a helium canister used to blow up party balloons to gas him essentially and stage his death as a suicide. So obviously that pricks up your ears as someone that worked in and around crime, but were you a bit cautious? Because it could just be, you know, gossip, small town talk. Yeah. When Tess told me, I said, look, Tess, you know, it just sounds like it couldn't be true. You know, small country towns, really anywhere, I think there's a big propensity for people to gossip and talk about everyone's business. So when Tess was telling me these things about this woman and her criminal past and that everybody was uncomfortable with her being in the community, you know, at canteen duty or passing her on the street, I just didn't believe it could be true. And if it was true, I wondered why the police hadn't arrested her yet. In those early days, what did we know about what had happened on August 2, 2017? What were the police telling us about what happened that night? Well, when my sister initially told me about what the town thought had happened, I didn't know anything. I sort of dismissed her and we'd had a few more conversations and we texted back and forth and eventually she found out the farmer's name and a bit of history about this woman, Natasha Darcy. And she texted me this photo of her. She's lying back in a hammock and has this crazy look on her face, just deep penetrating eyes sort of boring into the lens. And I can't describe the feeling. It just sent a shiver down my spine. And I just thought this woman looks like she's capable of what my sister had been describing to me, this one photo. So it was sort of a text exchange back and forth. Tess was texting me more photos of her. She'd done the deep dive on Facebook and social media. And then we both started Googling her and found all these local articles from the South Coast Register down south at Culborough about how she had, in fact, been found guilty of burning down her family home while her ex-husband slept in it. So some of the rumour mill that I thought was just rumour started to come true or the truth was coming out through our Google searches of her. So some listeners won't know how the police media situation works, but basically there is a number that you call for New South Wales and you say, hey, guys, I've heard this, what happened? Mm. And they can only give you kind of like basic details Mm. until you kind of dig a bit deeper. But what did they tell you about what happened that night? Well, often police media can background a journalist, especially for investigative reasons, if they don't want you to report on something at the time because it's a crucial point in the investigation. But I did call someone at police media and say, you know, I hear about this farmer's death. The farmer's name is Matthew Dunbar. He died on the 2nd of August in 2017. And they didn't seem to know too much about it when I first initially called them. But I got a call back and later an email with a statement sort of explaining that Local detectives from Tamworth and the Homicide Squad were assisting in the death of Matthew Dunbar, which was being treated as suspicious. So the word suspicious interested me in that I thought if this was just a suicide, why were the Homicide Squad investigating still three months on? Because at the time I had spoken to my sister, it was about two or three months after Matthew had died. Let's talk about Matthew. Who was he to his friends and family? Matthew Dunbar was by all accounts, the most generous man. Unfortunately, I never got to meet him, but it is the first word that everybody uses is generous. And, you know, I don't like cliches, but everybody did say he would give the shirt off his back to anyone. 
you know, his closest friend, Lance Partridge, just said if he ever mentioned he wanted something, Matthew would turn up at his house with six bottles of the wine he said he liked or he'd give him a camera if he expressed an interest in photography. And he did the same for his neighbours. He was a farmer from a beautiful merino property called Pandora, about 10 kilometres out of Walker, which he had inherited from his father. And he helped his neighbours. He just took great pleasure in helping other people, like buying farming machinery and taking it around to his neighbours' houses to show them the benefits of this new machinery. He was very community-minded. You know, he was involved in all the local boards, the local shows, the poultry club, and doing sort of small tasks that went thankless, but he did them anyways. I would just describe him as a very generous person, but also a very lonely person. When I first went to Walker, in the local cafe, a man came up to me and said he went to school with Matthew and that all he ever wanted was a family and he was looking for somebody to love him. And dozens of people said that to me when I first went to Walker. So it was clear that he was a giving man and one of considerable wealth with the property that he owned, but he was lonely and he was looking for love. How did his relationship with Natasha start? The exact origins of their relationship, I still don't know. But from what people tell me from his friends, they somehow met on the internet. Some people say it was Facebook. Others said it was a dating website. That wasn't entirely clear at the trial either, how their relationship started. But from what I could ascertain from social media and from what he had said to his friends, it was sometime in late 2014. And I can see that there is conversations between Natasha and Matthew on Facebook, where she thanks him for looking after two of her lambs that she dropped off at the property. But yeah, there's a bit of conjecture around how they actually met. Another person told me that she had just expressed an interest in farming and asked one of the local shearers if she could come around to watch the shearing. Now, I know she eventually did that. She eventually came to the property to watch him. But I don't know if their initial relationship started over online or Facebook or whether it was an introduction through somebody in town. We know Matthew had such a standing in the community, like everyone knew him. Was Natasha well-known? Was she a local as well? Like, what was her story? Natasha hails from down... Well, she grew up in a suburb called Freeman's Reach near Windsor on the outskirts of Sydney. And then for a period of time, she lived down on the south coast where her parents have retired. But the town sort of considered her a blow-in. You know, in country towns, you've got to live there for decades on end to be considered a local... And even then, sometimes you're not considered a local, but she definitely wasn't considered a local. And I think people saw her as an outsider and someone who had blown into their town and was causing havoc because a few years after she moved there, and she moved to Walcott with her husband, who was a local paramedic called Colin Crossman. She moved there with him from Sydney. And not long after they had been there, she torched the family home while he was sleeping inside. So the town was well aware that she did have this propensity for violence and to make stories up as well. Tell me about that incident because, you know, if you torch a house with someone in it, you would normally go to prison? Mm. <laughs> what, what happened? Yeah. Look, this is something that still confuses me. Natasha, she burned the family home down. One of her children was staying at a friend's house, but her son was sleeping inside as well at the time. 
it confuses me because she was charged with his attempted murder afterwards. But after several years of it going through the court process, and as you would know, the District Court in New South Wales, sometimes it takes two or three years for a case to get to trial. And on the second or third day of the trial, she struck an agreement, the prosecution and defence struck an agreement where she ended up pleading guilty to the lesser charge of destroying property by fire. That wasn't her only criminal history. You touched on it before. And she actually, I found this really interesting in your book, she spent about half of her relationship, she was with Matthew for about three years before Mm. he died. Mm. She spent about half of that in prison. What for? Yeah, she did. And Matthew was well aware of her criminal past. I don't know what she'd said to him, but he was fully supportive of her. And many people say that he was willing to turn a blind eye to anything she'd done in the past because he was so deeply in love with her and so deeply in love with the thought of having a family, a ready-made family with Natasha and her three children. So the romance was brief, but shortly after they met, Towards the end of 2014, Natasha went back to jail for perverting the course of justice. And that was in relation to another boyfriend called Fred Nicholson, another local that she'd met following her separation from Colin following the house fire. And just briefly, what had happened with Fred was that she had accused him of assaulting her and broken a wine bottle and scratched herself with the wine bottle and pretended that Fred had assaulted her and he then called the police and called Matthew as well and claimed that Fred was jealous about her relationship with Matthew. So Matthew was fully believing that Natasha had been assaulted by Fred, but after a police investigation, it was found that she had fabricated the assault. And the reason she'd done that was because she'd stolen Fred's credit card and gone on an almighty shopping spree in the nearby town of Armadale. And she wanted him to drop the charges. So she thought by fabricating these assault charges that he would drop them. But obviously that didn't happen. She went back to jail for at least another year. So you said Matthew wasn't concerned by her criminal history, but were the people around him a bit worried? They were very worried. And I can't speak for Matthew because I didn't get the opportunity to speak to him, sadly. I don't know whether he was worried, but he certainly turned a blind eye to it and was willing to continue the relationship. But his friends were deeply worried. Several people I've spoken to said that they tried to warn him, but anybody that tried to warn him about her, he would cut out of their lives. He would cut them from his life. So his best friend, Lance Partridge, didn't really raise it with him because he didn't want Matthew to be isolated. He wanted to be there as his friend and somebody that he could have to listen to no matter what and not judge him for his decisions. But a lot of other people that were close to him, his neighbours and old friends, did try to warn him and say something and Matthew would promptly cut them from his life. When she got out of prison in October 2016, she moved into Pandora onto his property. Mm -hmm. How did that go? Yeah, she moved onto Matthew's property shortly after she got out of jail. Matthew had renovated a granny flat on the property for her daughter and her two other sons. He'd renovated the house so that they would have a lovely home to live in with Natasha. So she moved straight in there and essentially took over the household and took over a lot in terms of spending. She was spending a lot of his money. She wanted a horse float. She got a horse float. She wanted a car. She got a car. And, you know, the cash flow was quite strained. Matthew was used to living by himself his whole life and always running on a strict budget, well, his own budget, and I guess not used to the expenses of an entire family, but also Natasha spending his money at a very, very quick rate. And he was quite well off, wasn't he? 
He was well off in terms of property, perhaps not cash flow. You know, he had several thousand sheep and the income from that was from shearing time towards the end of the year. And until he got that cash flow, things could remain tight during the year, needing to budget throughout the year until shearing time. He was asset rich, but perhaps cash poor. What do we know about Natasha and Matthew's relationship in those final kind of weeks and months before he died? We know that it was very strained. Matthew was deeply depressed and had told some of his friends about that. He'd told his neighbours that, he'd told Lance that, and actually about six weeks before he died, he threatened suicide and taken a gun from the sheds and driven off and called Natasha and said, I'm not coming back to the property. Now, this was off the back of having an argument with her because he'd loaned an ex-girlfriend some money in Mackay because she was dealing with flood damage. And so he'd loaned her money and they had a huge fight about the money. There was a lot of texts sent back and forth, many of which Natasha's deleted, so we don't know what she said. But it does turn out that, you know, Natasha was sort of goading him to take his own life. And Matthew did call his friend Lance Partridge and Lance was able to talk him down and asked him to come around to his house. So Matthew ended up driving to Lance's house after this threat of suicide and telling Lance that he was deeply unhappy, that the relationship had gone south, that Natasha didn't love him, he didn't feel like they were in a relationship and he was also very upset about the increasing presence of her ex-husband Colin on the property just for the fact that it was his home and Colin was in it and he wanted to have this family and he didn't want Colin in it either. It would become known as Natasha's test run, but what happened to Matthew's leg a few weeks before his death? Well, this only came out at the trial, but when I first went to Walker and spoke to one of his neighbours, the Hazlitts down the road, they told me that they thought that in the weeks leading up to Matthew's death that he was depressed due to this mysterious calf infection that he had in his leg. You know, one of them told me that Natasha had been poisoning him, which again, I kind of fobbed off and I feel really guilty about that now because I just thought there was no way someone was poisoning someone, injecting something into their leg in the weeks before they died. But it did turn out that Natasha had sourced some ram sedatives and had injected his leg with this ram sedative, causing an infection, which gave him a limp. So he spent the final weeks of his life in and out of hospital. And at one stage, he believed that perhaps his leg may need to be amputated, but his condition improved in the weeks leading up to his death. And in fact, the day before he was killed, the surgeon gave him a very positive prognosis and said that, you know, he would be able to walk and do normal things. But yet it caused him extreme misery in the weeks leading up to his death that he had this injury and that he was worried about the future of the farm. You mentioned ram sedatives. That was one of the rumours that was doing the rounds early on, wasn't Mm, it? It was. And that's also something that sort of sparked my interest as well in terms of that when I first went to Walker after I'd spoken to my sister and and the police ended up confirming that Natasha was the woman in the frame. When I first arrived in Walker, I went to the local pub and the local barman told me that Natasha definitely had murdered Matthew and I asked why. And he said, you know, ask anyone, like ask the vet, ask the butcher, ask the girls at the cafe down the road and the vet had reported Natasha to the police because she'd come into the local vet and asked for this ram sedative that she had absolutely no use for. She had nothing to do with the day-to-day running of the farm. And the vet actually ended up following up. She was so worried. I think she knew about Natasha's criminal past and everybody was worried she was out for Matthew's money that she 
made a statement with the local police and word spread quickly around Walker that Natasha was trying to get her hands on this sedative known as ace promazine. So you ended up in Walker about three months after Matthew died. And in that first trip, one of the next kind of clues that struck out to you was about his will. Mm. Can you talk me through that conversation you had with his best mate? Yes. So when I was in Walker, I went to find Lance Partridge, his best mate on his property just outside of Walker. And I sort of flagged Lance down on the side of a road. He was herding cattle down the side of a road. I thought this man's not going to want to speak to me. But he was just so friendly and so open. And I explained that I was a journalist and that I was looking into Matthew's suspicious death. And I assured him that, you know, a lot of our conversation wouldn't be printed unless she was charged with murder. But I wanted to ask him about Matthew, who he was, and what he thought about Natasha. And in that conversation, it came up that one time Lance was driving Matthew, they were driving together down to Sydney to visit Natasha in jail. Apparently she'd been stabbed by another inmate. Matthew was very distressed and Lance agreed to follow him down there just for moral support. And he heard a conversation that Natasha and Matthew had over the telephone from jail where Natasha was asking Matthew, have you changed your will? You know, has the will been left to me yet? That kind of thing. So Lance realised in that conversation that Natasha had made several moves to get Matthew to change his will to make her the sole beneficiary of Pandora, a multi-million dollar property. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Gemma Bath. I'm speaking with journalist Emma Partridge about Natasha Darcy, the widow of Walker. When you left... Walker, after that first visit, after having all of these conversations, you know, with Lance, with the vet, with the butcher, with the barman, how did you feel about everything you'd been hearing? I felt fairly confident that Natasha had murdered Matthew, this coming from police contacts as well, but especially those conversations in town where it was clear that this wasn't just a rumour. You could see how worried people were. You could see how upset they were in the wake of Matthew's death and a lot of them felt like nothing was being done about it. They couldn't understand why she hadn't been arrested, why she was still walking down the street laughing, larger than life. And, you know, to them, one of their own had been taken and nothing was being done about it. So when I left Walker driving home back to Sydney, I did have this very strong sense that this woman had murdered Matthew. And I too wondered when she was going to be arrested. So you went back three weeks later and that was the first time you met Natasha. Tell me about that. I was hoping to meet her. I needed to speak to her. At the time I was working as a journalist for the Daily Telegraph and our legal advice was that if we were ever going to print an article about the allegations, I would have to put them to her myself or at least get her side of the story. And I guess, you know, as a journalist, I guess I'd be a failure not to try to speak to her. Although, as you know, a lot of people don't want to speak to journalists that lob up on their doorsteps. Not really. No. 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 <laughs> so one of the purposes of the trip three weeks later was to speak to Natasha. I went there with photographer Nathan Edwards. I was scared because at this point I really did think that she had done what the town had accused her of. And the homestead at Pandora is down about a kilometre down this dirt driveway with 
pine trees lining it. It's quite eerie as it snakes down towards the homestead and you can't see the house itself as you're going down the drive. And we were scared of her reaction. Um, We were scared about what she would say to us or how she would react. And I was also very mindful. I didn't want to do anything to stuff up the police investigation at the time. I had been assured by others that me speaking to her wouldn't interfere with anything that the police were doing. She did end up talking to you, probably more than you would have expected her to. What did you take away from that chat with her? It was quite incredible. I think it's probably one of the most incredible moments I've had as a journalist. When we got to the farm gate, Natasha walked towards us, big smile on her face, you know, light pink polo shirt on, twirling her pony tail with her fingers. I introduced myself as a journalist and Nathan as the photographer and said that I was doing a story about Matthew's suspicious death. And as her partner, would she like to say anything? Would she like to sort of address the rumours in town? And she immediately dismissed me and said she cannot speak to me. Her lawyer said she can't speak to me. And only about sort of 30 seconds, maybe a minute into our chat, her phone rang. And Nathan and I, the photographer, we could hear this other voice on the end of the line telling Natasha that the police investigation was over. And we couldn't believe we were hearing the contents of what was on the other end of the phone, but we couldn't believe we were seeing her reaction to it as well. She was smiling. She looked elated. And the voice on the other end of the phone said that police want you to come into the station and get your things back, give you Matthew's phone, your phone back, all the computers. So by the end of the conversation, she thought she was in the clear. She thought that his death had been ruled a suicide, although nothing of that nature had been said. I think she just assumed that it was over in terms of it had been ruled a suicide. I don't think she realised when they said the investigation's over that her arrest was imminent, but we did. So I guess that because you work in that world, you could read between the lines there, whereas she didn't know. I don't think she knew what was happening. And because I've been a crime reporter and a court reporter for the past decade, I knew that, you know, sometimes police don't always arrest people at their home. Sometimes they ask them to come into the station. And just because they say an investigation's over doesn't mean that it's over in the way that the person's being investigated thinks. And I just knew from her reaction and from what I had been hearing from police about her arrest being imminent, Nathan and I, the photographer and I, got the sense that, you know, an arrest was imminent, but Natasha didn't realise that. And because of that phone call she got in front of us, she had this newfound confidence when she hung up the phone. She was more than happy to chat, so chatty. I was blown away. My heart was beating out of my chest. I couldn't believe the things she was saying. She said that Matthew had suicided, that he'd been depressed. She tried to save him. The crocodile tears came. She was wiping away tears, telling me that she'd tried to hide his medication and she'd done everything she could, but they'd gone to hospital the day before. He had apparently suicided and that the surgeon had delivered really terrible news about his leg and that really set him off and that she said that he didn't think he could run the farm anymore and she believed that that's why he had killed himself. How long after that did it take for her to get arrested and charged? So after we had the conversation with her at the farm gate and she sort of gifted me her version of events, I guess, without me having to ask many questions, I couldn't even ask questions at that point. I was so blown away by what she was saying to me. We left and then I wrote an article for the Daily Telegraph, which was printed a couple of days after that conversation I had with Natasha. I think the article went as close as you could to accusing someone of murder. And I guess my career was kind of on the line there because if she wasn't arrested, it was highly defamatory, the way in which the facts had been presented. It was all factual, but difficult to write when she hadn't been. 
charged with murder yet. So the article was printed, I think it was on the Thursday or Friday. It was on the front page of the Telegraph. Everybody in the street was reading it. The local news agent ran out of papers. And I think it was the day or the next day after that, that police went to Pandora and arrested her. So she was charged with murder and she went into a series of police interviews, which is what happens Mm -hmm. when you get charged with murder. You did eventually get to watch a lot of those conversations back. How would you compare her in those interviews to the chat you had, for instance? I would say she was much the same in terms of very blasé, giggling and, you know, almost trying to flirt with the police officers that were interviewing her. Even in the hours after Matthew died, the police went to the house that she was staying at and asked her a series of questions and her reaction was callous and it was not very caring. She asked them about whether the cats were okay. She asked them if they'd seen her espresso machine that could make them a coffee if they wanted and she was giggling. I feel like she was trying to charm them into, well, I feel in some way she was trying to charm them and hoping that perhaps she could persuade them that she was just a a fun, ditzy blonde who would never have anything to do with murdering her partner. So that initial interview with police was a bit similar to the way in which we had chatted, very friendly, looks you in the eye, but very flippant as well. So she was refused bail and she spent, you know, the next year in prison Mm. waiting for her court processes to kind of kick off. And in one of those first instances where she was trying to get bail, you got to hear the prosecution's case kind of outlined for Mm. the very first time. And we find out in that moment that it's built around some Google searches. Mm -hmm. Can you talk us through that evidence? Sure. Well, I found out about some of the Google searches after her arrest, in the days after her arrest, and some of the searches were coming out, some of the police fact sheets were being leaked. But it wasn't until she went for bail in the Supreme Court in Sydney that I heard firsthand the extent of the Google searches and the fact that not long after she'd gotten out of jail in 2016 that she started this vile search for how to murder somebody in many different ways, you know, from 11 toxic plants that look like food to stroke murder, the science of getting away with murder, those type of searches. And she was relentless. It was almost every day and sometimes dozens and dozens of searches. And and often the searches were focused on drugs that perhaps Matthew had taken as antidepressants or some of the medications that her children took. And then she'd look up ways to overdose or how many pills would be needed to overdose. So the Google searches were just unbelievable. They're sickening. And there was one particular internet search on the night of Matthew's death at about 12.37? Yes, that was is helium traceable in an autopsy? So on the night that Natasha claims that Matthew suicided, but she had in fact killed him, after she had rigged up this apparatus to make his death look like a suicide, she got his phone and typed in, you know, is helium traceable in an autopsy? And then shortly after that, at about two o'clock in the morning, she phoned Triple O claiming that she'd found him dead. And this came out at the trial and I think any person with common sense would wonder if somebody has suicided, why would they be looking up what had killed them, whether it's traceable in an autopsy? How did the prosecution allege that she had sedated him or killed him in that manner? 
The prosecution did quite an incredible job going back through the timeline. It was such a sordid and long and sickening timeline of the searches and the things that she had done. And what they did so well is that they got all her Google searches, all her internet and phone searches, and then compared that to her activities and what she was doing at the time. So, you know, she looked up paliperidone or Seroquel, which are drugs, one of which she ended up using to sedate Matthew. Then they could correlate that with the time that she had her phone. And the prosecution successfully proved at the trial that she had obtained a number of drugs, one being her son's medication, the ACE Promazine, which she unsuccessfully got from the Walker vet, but after a lot of hard work, ended up getting it from another vet in Armadale and mixed that with two or three other drugs and essentially blended a cocktail of drugs in a Nutribullet, which she fed to Matthew. I don't know what she said to him. I don't know whether she said that perhaps it might help him with his leg or general health, but she somehow got Matthew to drink that drink. And not long after that, Matthew was sedated in his bed. You were hearing all of this kind of damning evidence in this overview of what they were going Mm. to be doing in this trial. And then we didn't actually get to see it all unfolding for quite a few months, didn't we? This was COVID related? Mm, It was years. So Natasha murdered Matthew in August 2017 and her trial didn't take place until last year in March, April 2021. And yes, COVID related, but also these cases just take so long to get to the Supreme Court. They go through the local court first, then there's committal hearings, bail hearings, and a lot of it was put down to COVID during the pandemic. Trials weren't sitting due to safety for jurors, not being able to sit in close proximity. But just in general, as you know, the whole city, the whole country shut down and so did murder trials. In the meantime, you were reading old police interviews, trying to find out what other pieces of this puzzle Mm. you could work out. And you did find some similarities between, you know, Colin's attempted murder and what happened to Matthew. What were some of the things that struck out to you from reading those police interviews and, and reading up about what happened to Colin? Yeah, I couldn't believe that years after I had done all this reporting on the case and interviewed Matthew's friends and spoken to Natasha and the police at length and followed it through the courts, it wasn't until a pre-trial hearing before her actual trial that I heard these details about what had happened to Colin back in 2009. And after I had heard sort of what essentially had happened to Colin in one of the hearings, I applied for all her old court documents and sort of unearthed this box of all of her criminal history. And what struck me in some of the details of what had happened when she burned the house down was that Colin, her ex-husband, had been drugged with a number of sedatives, sedatives that Natasha had looked up on her work computer. So the similarities were shocking to me and I had no idea that the way in which she had targeted Colin had been quite similar to the way in which she had killed Matthew. But yeah, the researching of the sedatives, I mean, in Matthew's case, she blended a cocktail of sedatives in a Nutribullet, whereas the prosecution alleged in this pre-trial hearing and in the facts, the police allegations were that Natasha had fed him Oysters Kilpatrick, which the prosecution alleged were laced with drugs. Now that was never proven, but that was the police allegation at the time. Later that night, she hit him over the head with a hammer. And then a few nights later, she fed him a meal of tacos and Colin has told the police he ate the tacos and doesn't remember a thing. After eating the tacos, he woke up in the emergency room at Tamworth Hospital, smoke inhalation and drowsy and lost his memory because he'd nearly burned alive in his bedroom. Hearing details like that, and obviously Colin would have lived all of that, Mm. it's quite 
astounding that he was still, because he was quite friendly with her, wasn't he? Mm. Still in the town. Do we know why? Yeah, well, I saw them together. Everyone in town had expressed sort of disbelief and just could not understand why Colin still had anything to do with her. And photographer and I who followed her around town for a bit saw them together interacting, laughing, being very friendly. And that is what everyone in town had said. It's something that I think will remain a mystery. Only Colin knows why Colin is still in touch with Natasha. I have approached Colin myself to see whether he ever wanted to speak to me about his reasonings or whether he wanted to explain why he supported Natasha. But all he said to me was that they have children and I had to respect that and not take it any further with him. I can only assume it has something to do with children. I can't imagine why anyone would want to continue associating with someone who had been charged with their attempted murder. And she pleaded guilty to burning the house down, but in agreeing to that, she agreed to what she had done. So she agreed to getting a jerry can of petrol and throwing it around the bedroom and all the other things that she had done as well. So I think it remains a mystery. I would still really love to know why they do associate. I don't know if they associate anymore since she murdered Matthew, but certainly in the lead up to Matthew's death, they were still in close contact. We've spoken a lot about the evidence against Natasha and about the prosecution's case, but when the trial actually began, what was the defence's claims? It was quite bizarre when Natasha was asked if she was pleading guilty or not guilty to murder, she stood up and said not guilty to murder but guilty to aiding and abetting suicide. So this was something I had never heard. I don't know who else had heard of this either. I don't even know if the prosecution were aware of this. I think they were a bit blindsided by it. And so the defence had to take that forward in their opening address because Natasha had pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting suicide, their defence was that she had helped him. And the reason that she had lied so much, because she lied hundreds and hundreds of lies in her police interviews. So the defence's case was that she had lied because she was covering up that she had assisted his suicide. And that's the reason why she had lied. A lot of it didn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, one of the things that the defence barrister said was that once someone tells one lie, they have to tell a lot of lies to cover that original lie. There wasn't a lot of substance, but it was that basically it was a character assassination of Matthew, which I found super uncomfortable to listen to in court. He's not there to defend himself and I hate it when the victims of a crime are on trial. So the defence painted him as a lonely man, which we know he was, but just sort of took a scalpel to his life and laid it all bare in the most embarrassing of ways, you know, accused him of being gay, accused him of being a spendthrift bad with money, and basically that, you know, his own death was his own fault. Midway through the trial, because it was a long trial, wasn't it? It was two months? Yeah, a couple of months. And midway through, you all kind of got wind that there was this bombshell evidence that was going to be heard. Was it a bombshell? What happened? It really was. <laughs> it really was. I heard these whispers that something was going to present itself. I didn't know exactly what, but what eventually came about and the jury heard was that a friend of Natasha's came forward. She had known and had something in her possession about Natasha, but after she saw media reports surfacing about the trial, she felt like she had to come forward. And it was a series of letters that Natasha had written to her from jail, I guess, trying to sort of groom her in a way and get her on side because she didn't have many friends left. And in one of the letters, Natasha wrote to her 
I still can't believe this and describe this plot in the 90s sitcom Frasier. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. watched it. Yeah. And explained to her that there was an episode where Frasier had to lie for Niles in a divorce case, but, you know, he did it with the best of intentions and sort of used this show as a backdrop before she dropped the bomb and basically said to her, and I'm hoping you might be able to do something similar for me. I'm hoping that you might be able to, you know, tell the police or make a statement saying that Matthew was severely depressed and that he told you he was going to suicide and told you how he was going to do it. This woman had never met Matthew and Natasha was asking her to pretend that she'd had a conversation with Matthew and that he said he was going to suicide in the lead up to his death. What's particularly nasty about this is that the woman she asked had had her own battles with mental health and she used that against this poor woman woman who's a disability worker and a lovely woman and put her in a terrible position after she received the letter. She We've spoken since and she told me when she was reading the letter, she was saying, no, 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 like don't ask me this. Like she knew where it was going and she thought, do not ask me to do this. This woman has children. Obviously Natasha didn't care about this woman or the fact she had children, but she was asking her to lie about it and offered her $20,000 in return for making a false statement. So there's all this evidence kind of piling up, including this bombshell evidence that comes through midway through the trial. By the time the jury goes out to consider the case, is there suspense? Are you expecting a guilty or you can never really tell, can you? I don't think you can ever tell with a jury. I thought the evidence was overwhelming. I don't feel like there was much in terms of a defence. It was a character assassination of Matthew. I felt confident that the prosecution had done a really good job, a thorough job, but I think because it's a jury, you just never know if there is that just one or two people that have a reasonable doubt. So I think everybody, the police, the prosecution, Matthew's friends and family who I was texting throughout, especially during the, you know, god-awful jury watch where you just wait outside the court door to see when the jury sends a note for their verdict. I think everybody was worried. You just can't be certain until they hand the verdict down. So the verdict came back guilty. Mm -hmm. How did his family and community react to that? I think it brought back a lot of sadness for everybody. At the end of the day, Matthew Dunbar was a beautiful part of the community of Walker and everybody still missed him and still grieving their loss. But On the other hand, I think people were just glad that Natasha had gone down. They were glad to see justice being done for Matthew and for all the lies that she told for everybody to be laid bare and for the jury to find her guilty. I mean, I think there was a great sense of relief. People were also scared. A lot of people, friends and family were texting me during the trial, worried that if she got off, would she come back to Walker? Would she come and torch their homes? What would she do? So I think people were frightened about what would happen if she got off, but they were also scared and frightened that Matthew wouldn't get justice. So I think there was a great sense of relief. And as it is with court cases, this stuff drags out. Mm. So eight months later, we get a sentence and that was only really recently. It was a few months ago. Mm. What was the sentence? How did that go? The sentence happened in February, so not long ago, and Justice Julia Lonergan gave her a minimum of 30 years jail, non-parole, and a maximum of 40 years. So she has the potential to serve up to 40 years, which I guess she might if she doesn't admit to what she's done, which I highly doubt she will. But otherwise, she'd already served five years in jail, so she's got another 25 to go. You watched that sentence be handed down, so you saw her reaction. Was she surprised by it? I couldn't tell. She just had this blank face. 
She blinked a few times. She just looked whitewashed. She just looked like a ghost. She didn't really have a reaction to it. And after Justice Lonigan handed down the sentence, the screen was cut. She didn't want to appear in court for her sentencing. Most convicted people are in court for their sentences, but she chose not to come to court. She wanted to watch the proceedings from jail. You write in your book that many police believe that if Natasha had killed in another state, in another town, in another area of Australia, that she might have gotten away with it. In this case, how integral were the people of Walker to helping solve this case? I think the people of Walker were very integral. I mean, they had flagged their concerns with police before Natasha had murdered Matthew. And incredibly, and I only found out later in the piece that there had been so many people come forward and the statement from the vet about the ACE promazine, which is the RAM sedative, that the police had actually looked, they're in the initial stages of an investigation, looking into whether Natasha might be doing something to gain some financial benefit from Matthew. So incredibly, at the moment that she did murder Matthew, the police were already looking at her and whether she might be planning to do something, but unfortunately she did it before they could do anything about it. It's also very hard to prove something that someone hasn't done. But it's true. Many people say that if she had committed this murder in another town, perhaps she would have got away with it because everybody's suspicions were already raised. So when the local sergeant, Anthony Smith, got the phone call saying that there had been a death out on Pandora, he knew straight away, he knew that Natasha had murdered Matthew and was highly distressed about it because he knew about Natasha's past and he had been the local police officer that had tried to do something about it. And he put his hand up in a meeting not long before the murder saying, I think a bloke in Walker's about to get murdered. I mean, what can we do about this? But because of the local police and because of their knowledge and the people from Walker coming forward, the police acted so swiftly. So had it had just been ruled a suicide, I don't think the police would have got out there straight away. It was declared a crime scene straight away. I don't think, you know, the Nutribullet or the mixer, the tumbler from the dishwasher would have been taken as evidence. The police also obtained evidence like Matthew's vomit from the carpet and things like that, things that proved that the ACE promazine was in his system and also asked for certain things on the autopsy to be picked up as well. So I think that definitely the police, the local police and the people of Walker had a lot to do with bringing Natasha down. Have you been back to Walker since everything happened? Do you think that Matthew's murder will forever be something that changes the community there? I think it will change the community, but You know, I hope that with Natasha being found guilty that the people of Walker can move on in some way in terms of the comfort of her being in jail. But I think that loss will always be there. One of their own was murdered in such a callous and calculated manner. I think it would be hard not to think about it. I do still speak to people that live in Walker. People find it hard to drive past Pandora without thinking about what happened out there. I have been back. You know, I find it difficult and I didn't know Matthew myself personally and I find it difficult driving past and looking at this sort of picture-perfect homestead on this beautiful property and thinking about what happened within those four walls. I think it would be incredibly difficult, you know, to forget about it. I have been back and I went and had dinner at Lance Partridge's house with his wife, Trish, who were both very close to Matthew and we went for a walk down the street in Walker and And Lance puts it nicely in that, you know, people will never forget Matthew and what a generous person he was. And he's hoping that people will remember that more so the way in which his life was taken. Emma Partridge is a senior crime editor for Nine News Sydney. 
In her time as a journalist, she's also worked as the chief court reporter for the Daily Telegraph and has earned a number of accolades, including the Kennedy Award for Outstanding Court Reporting in 2017 and the Kennedy Award for Outstanding Crime Reporting in 2018. As of today, Emma's officially a published author. Her new book, The Widow of Walker, about Natasha Darcy and the murder of Matthew Dunbar, is now available at all good bookstores or through the link in our show description. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Gemma Bath, and my executive producer is Gia Moylan. If you have a case you think we should cover next, get in touch with us. Send an email to truecrime at mamamia.com.au or join our online community. Just search for True Crime Conversations on Facebook and make a request to join.